Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 27, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law issues, developments, and rulings. We are tremendously privileged this week to be joined by an absolute titan of appellate practice, the 46th Solicitor General of the United States, Donald Verrilli, who retired his post this past summer and who now works as a partner in Munger Toll's new Washington, D.C. office. Mr. Verrilli will visit to reflect on his tenure as Solicitor General, one that saw more than a handful of contentious and historically significant Supreme Court cases, including a string advancing the cause of marriage equality, two defending the Affordable Care Act, and a number of others. As we hear, Mr. Verrilli is quite generous with his time and, and quite candid in discussing the preparation and particular stresses that went in some of those cases. We'll reflect also on certain setbacks during his tenure, including an important one in the case of Shelby County versus Holder, in which certain elements of the Voting Rights Act were invalidated. It's, of course, particularly interesting to hear from Mr. Verrilli now as a new presidential administration takes office and one which seems quite intent to dismantle much of the legacy of its predecessor, and not least of which is the, the Affordable Care Act, of course, defended by Mr. Verley on two separate occasions. We'll share his thoughts on that reality, perhaps a somewhat unexpected one, um, and on the election generally, and other incidental issues related to it, including the Supreme Court vacancy left by the late Justice Antonin Scalia, which Mr. Verley argues should have been filled by D.C. Circuit presiding Judge Merrick Garland. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to remind you, as always, that CLA credit is available for your having tuned into the program. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, I give you my conversation with former Solicitor General Donald Verrilli. It's my distinct privilege and honor to welcome to the podcast now former Solicitor General Sir Donald Verrilli, now a partner with Munger Tolls and Olson, the founding partner of the firm's Washington, D.C. office, opened just recently. Mr. Verrilli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that back in the early fall when our office first reached out to yours to potentially set up a chat to reflect on your time as Solicitor General and look forward to the work you have coming up with Munger Tolls, um, we likely at that time would have envisioned chatting under somewhat different circumstances, perhaps after your, your former boss, President Obama, being succeeded by Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, who seemed to be the front runner, just up until about Election Day. The difference between that transition that could have taken place and the one that in fact did certainly augurs meaningfully um, in terms of President Obama's legacy and in some ways your own as the government attorney who defended a number of programs, chiefly the Affordable Care Act that now stand in some peril. Um, I'd like to get into all of that, but maybe first we could start closer to the beginning when, when you got into government service. And I think that was back in 2009 after a successful career with the firm Jenner and Block. You moved into the Obama administration. What at that time inspired you to become a public servant after a lucrative and successful private practice? Well, I did have a, a wonderful experience at Jenner and Block. It's a great, great law firm fantastic values, totally devoted to pro bono and public service and uh, world-class lawyers. And I was really lucky to have the great career I had there. And I uh, was at General Block for more than 20 years and in private practice for more than 20 years. And that was something that, um, as I look back on, I was a little bit surprised at. You know, I settled in Washington, D.C. after clerking um, with the thought that I would 
have a career where I went in and out of government, and in particular, a career where I would spend significant time as a lawyer in the Justice Department. That was one of my real aspirations. And then, you know, life went on in private practice, and I was having a good experience, and for whatever reason, I didn't avail myself of the opportunity to serve in government that came along. And the next thing I knew, it was 2009, and I was in my 50s, and I hadn't done any public service at all. And so I decided at that point I had been a, a very strong supporter of then-Senator Obama and his uh, campaign for the presidency, and once he got elected, um, in part because of my feelings about President Obama and in part because of my feelings about the importance of serving the country in the government at that moment in particular when things were so bleak and we were in the middle of such a horrible financial crisis and so many struggles that I was going into the government and that you know basically the way I said it was I really don't care uh, what job if they want me to sweep the floors of the Justice Department that's fine I'm just going to go into the government and serve now and I was lucky enough to get asked uh, by a good friend of mine and a superb lawyer and public servant David Ogden who had become the deputy attorney general David and I had known each other for many decades, and he asked me whether I would come in and work with him in the Deputy Attorney General's office, and so I eagerly did that, and uh, that launched my uh, career in public service. Serving the country and serving others is not something that had been unfamiliar to you before. At that point, I know you had done some pro bono matters, and particularly in post-conviction death penalty appeals. Um, what drew you to such work, and uh, what, what did you learn from those experiences? Yeah, so... I did quite a few uh, cases representing people on death row in post-conviction proceedings, as you said. I started doing it almost as soon as I went into private practice, and that came out of my experience as a law clerk for Justice Brennan in the mid-1980s. That was a period of time um, during which the pace of executions being scheduled in the country was really on the rise, and as a result... We at the Supreme Court, the law clerks and the justices, were facing a pretty constant stream of late-night stay applications, people seeking stays of executions. And working on those, I was really struck by uh, what seemed to me to be uh, the reality that the quality of lawyering was really more than anything else making the the difference between who got executed and who didn't, you know, both in terms of the quality of the papers that were being submitted to the Supreme Court, but also the quality of the lawyering that led up to the uh, final proceedings. And so when I left, I decided that I wanted to contribute some of my ability and my efforts to see if I could ameliorate that problem a little bit. And, and so I took started taking on these cases. And I will say, as I reflect back, I think I can't think of anything else that I did in my career that made as much of a difference to me, um, to my development as a lawyer. And in fact, um, what I say to audiences of young lawyers now, um, when I get a chance to talk with them, is that I'm morally certain that had I not uh, done that death penalty work as a young lawyer, I never would have ended up as Solicitor General. And you know, back in the 1980s, it was extremely controversial work, and some law firms even shied away from it. And uh, there was quite strong public sentiment in favor of capital punishment. And, uh, and uh, you know, if somebody was kind of plotting a, a path back then as a young lawyer wanting to end up as a solicitor general or a judge or something someday, I think probably the last thing one would have done was to take on those kinds of cases 
you know, because they could have been a real mark of controversy. But as I said, it really was the experience that was the foundation for me ending up a solicitor general. And that's really true in two ways. One, I I ended up over the course of my time in private practice in my first go-round having five death penalty cases that I argued in the Supreme Court. And so a huge amount of my experience that made people think I might be remotely qualified uh, to serve as Solicitor General came out of that uh, death penalty work. But I think even more fundamentally, those cases more than any others really taught me how to be a lawyer. I, I was responsible for those cases and those clients. It was the first chair in those cases even as a young lawyer. And had to do the investigating myself, had to make the tactical judgments, decide which arguments to press, which arguments to forego, how to emphasize them, what strategies to follow in court. And, um, you know, there was a lot on the line in those cases, and I really learned a lot about how to litigate effectively and make good judgments and, and serve my client. And so I think it was actually that commitment that led to me, with a pretty direct path to me having the chance to become Solicitor General. You describe that impact as significant. Do you recall any particular cases or moments that uh, stand out when you reflect? Oh, sure. You know, I had, you know, these, um, you represent people on death row, you really, it forces you to really think about what it means to be a lawyer. Um, because, uh, you know, first of all, um, not everybody who I represented on death row, would I say was, you know, some poor misguided soul, uh, you know, who uh, shouldn't be behind bars. Some of them were really kind of scary people. But you had to learn that uh, no matter what you felt about the, the individual, that you were this person's advocate. That was your responsibility. It was a solemn responsibility to do your best. And then, But then there was one case in particular with a, a client named Kevin Wiggins who I ended up representing for, I think, about a decade or more. I started his case in state post-conviction uh, proceedings. It was a case out of Maryland. And uh, we went through 10 or 12 years worth of post-conviction proceedings, ending up all the way in the United States Supreme Court. We ended up getting his case reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court, and we were able to pull out a victory in the, in the case. Wiggins against Smith is the name of it back in 2003, uh, finding of ineffective assistance of counsel at sentencing. And it was, uh, I think, an important case because it helped set the standards by which the performance of of uh, capital counsel is measured in sentencing proceedings, and we're able to secure a uh, reversal of Mr. Wiggins' uh, death sentence. And uh, on, on uh, resentencing, he was sentenced to uh, life imprisonment, so avoided execution. And, and Kevin and I uh, got to know each other quite well over those 12 years, and so we did have something of a personal bond uh, there that made that a particularly special case. You described that some inspiration to pursue that work comes from your time clerking under Justice William Brennan. Um, I'd like to talk just a little bit more about that time, and also I believe you clerked for Judge Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit, who had formerly been down in the district courts in, in New Orleans. Um, those are two pretty leading lights in American jurisprudence. What, what was it like working with them, and what, what things did you glean from those experiences? So I, I was so, so lucky to have the chance to work for both Judge Wright and Justice Brennan. Because as you said, they were both towering figures in the law, made huge contributions to the law that endure to this day. And um, on top of that, they were both wonderful, caring human beings uh, who 
created an environment in, in which it was just an absolute joy to serve as a law clerk. Uh, they were both really, really wonderful. They were both quite senior by the time I worked for them, and so there was an advantage to that too in that we uh, gained the benefit of the wisdom that they had gleaned over their many years of service to the country and the judiciary. And, and you know, at that point, both of them were sort of looking back on their careers and uh, and it was wonderful to be able to spend that kind of time with them. And they both were very open uh, human beings and spent a huge amount of time talking with the law clerks. Justice Brennan, for example, he didn't have us write bench memos to help him prepare. Instead, we would meet with him every morning for two hours or so around his desk in his chambers and just discuss the cases. And uh, it was a wonderful, phenomenal experience and uh, one I, I have always been and always will be deeply grateful for. Maybe moving now back to the beginning of your career with the Obama administration in 2009, you started in the Deputy Attorney General's office and eventually moved to the office of the White House Counsel. What sorts of things are you working on at that time with the, the new administration? Yeah, you know, I did a lot of uh, legal problem-solving kinds of uh, tasks um, and legal policy, I would say, mostly. When I was in the Deputy Attorney General's office, one thing I uh, focused on uh, were, were some national security-related issues. Probably the one that got the most attention was trying to develop a policy for the new administration for the use of the state secrets privilege. Um, there had been some criticism about the Bush administration's use of the state secrets privilege. That's a doctrine that allows the government to come into civil litigation and essentially tell the court that the civil litigation has to be shut down because the continuation of the litigation will compromise national security secrets. And um, that doctrine had been invoked in some, in some cases during the Bush administration to shut down challenges to surveillance and challenges to uh, rendition and allegations of torture. And uh, so one of the first tasks I, tasks I got when I was in the Deputy Attorney General's office was to review all the assertions of the state secrets privilege by uh, the prior administration and see whether we thought as a new administration that we ought to continue them and then to try to develop a policy to guide and constrain the use of that privilege by the government uh, on a going forward basis. And I spent a lot of time in my first year working on that project. And, you know, I came in with the typical liberals skepticism, I think, of the state secrets privilege and the government's use of it. And then I uh, got the requisite security clearances and looked at the classified material that had been assembled in each of those cases. I think it was about 15 of them, actually, at the time um, that the government relied on and had submitted to the courts to uh, defend uh, and, and try to substantiate the need for the assertion of the privilege. And after looking at that information, the classified information, I became quite convinced that in each of those instances, the government had actually acted appropriately in asserting the privilege and that there really was a risk, a significant risk of compromising classified information that it would be dangerous to compromise if the cases went forward and that it actually had been done quite responsibly and that the, the government also had assembled a very substantial record, you know, classified record, uh, and submitted it to the court in each instance. And so I came away with a much healthier appreciation for the need to balance you know, the fairness and openness and transparency of the judicial process and of the government generally 
with the need to protect national security, sometimes through the classification process. Uh, so it was a good thing to happen early in my time in the government to achieve that healthier sense of balance. And then from that, I tried to build out a policy that we could get widespread agreement within the intelligence community and the Justice Department and the Defense Department and the White House um, uh, on how the privilege ought to be used going forward and to try to make it, uh, you know, impose some very significant procedural constraints such that uh, it would be hard work for the government to go through the process of having to invoke it and meet, you know, make sure that we were meeting high standards in each instance when we did try to invoke it. So that was important and interesting work. And then um, after about a year, I moved over to the White House and was in the counsel's office and, and was deputy counsel for the, to the president for most of that time. And one of the big things I spent a lot of time working on there was the Gulf oil spill. Uh, and that occurred a few months after I moved over to the White House, and it was a consuming project for me for several months. And I think if you told me in advance, you know, that uh, you, you were going to give you a job in the White House and your job is going to be to spend four months working 12 hours a day trying to deal with an oil spill, I would have said no thank you. But, uh, but you know, it ended up being one of the more interesting projects in my career because it was a huge multidimensional challenge. There were issues of federal law involved and uh, issues about uh, who who was going to be responsible for the cleanup in what way, issues of allocating authority between the federal government and the state governments uh, in the affected region, both in terms of you know, taking uh, control over the, the cleanup efforts and figuring out how uh, the environmental damage was going to be paid for, figuring out how the damage uh, to businesses, et cetera, was going to be paid for. There were issues like the the, the um, military had uh, certain vessels that could be of use in cleaning up the oil spill, but they were up in Alaska, and we needed to get certain legal authorities cleared in order to get them from Alaska down to the Gulf of Mexico to help. And so it was this huge multidimensional problem that required a whole wide range of skills to try to deal with, uh, and it was all happening in real time. And there was an enormous amount of pressure, uh, as, I, as you may remember, on that situation to you know, try to get the, the flow of oil capped and then to try to um, immediately do everything possible to try to bring about a prompt cleanup in the environment and then trying to protect the interests of people who had been injured. And it was really quite something. It was, it was a great experience working on it. Sure. I actually had the opportunity in the summer of 2013 to intern in the Department of Justice's Environment and Natural Resources Division. I recall that litigation just sort of dominating many conversations and the day-to-day yeah. -day lives of many attorneys in, in the department. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, it was a really big thing, right? Can you tell me a bit about assuming the, the mantle of the Office of the Solicitor General and being tapped and nominated by President Obama? And I guess also I'd be curious to know in your time either in the White House or uh, as SG, how much interaction you had with, with President Obama and, and what uh, how, how you would describe him. So... Um, I'll start with how I describe him. I consider it the great privilege of my life to have had the chance to work in his administration. I uh, think he is a great man. I think he was a great president. And uh, the thing that I admire most about President Obama was that he genuinely always was trying to do what he thought was right and best for the country. Uh, he was trying to make the right decisions for the right reasons. 
and he demanded of the people around him that they try to help him make the right decisions for the right reasons. And that was invariably true. Every single issue that I interacted with the president on, that was true about. Um, I, would, I never, ever felt let down or disappointed. Uh, I, I was uh, always inspired by him and his leadership. And having said that, when I was SG, I actually did not have a great deal of interaction with the president and um, the president in particular and the White House in general were quite respectful of the independence of Solicitor General's office and of the role of Solicitor General to make judgments about what the United States position ought to be in the Supreme Court and the Courts of Appeals. And I did not, for example, have any kind of a regular meeting with the White House counsel where I went over and reported on what um, what the office was planning to do in cases. I didn't send written reports over, nothing like that. I mean, basically what would happen, it would be maybe two, three, four cases a year um, where we might be taking a position that I thought they would find a little bit surprising, that I would call the White House counsel and give the White House counsel a heads up that this is what we were going to do. And, you know, I suppose implicit in, in a conversation like that was, you know, I'm putting you on notice, and of course the president could overrule me on this, um, but I'm not wasn't asking for permission in any of those instances to do what we were going to do. I was just putting them on notice, and uh, and and never ever got any pushback from the White House during my five years on any case. And a good example of a case like that would be one where we filed an amicus brief, uh, the government filed an amicus brief when I was SG a few years back. It's called the Town of Greece case, and it was a question about the the constitutionality of starting a city council meeting with a uh, religious prayer. And um, I had decided that the right judgment, uh, the right position for the United States government to take in that case would be to defend the constitutionality of having a prayer at the start of a city council meeting, and in part I did that because the U.S. Congress starts every session with a prayer, and I thought that we needed to advocate for a legal rule that defended the constitutionality of that long-standing, long-standing practice of the Congress. And But I thought that it wasn't the civil libertarian position, and therefore I thought there might be some folks in the White House who would be surprised by us taking it, so I, would, I called and gave a heads up that this is what we were planning to do. And so that was my basic... Um, MO in dealing with the White House, and I'm very grateful for the degree of uh, autonomy and respect uh, for the office that I received from them. There was really only one time during my tenure as SG when I thought I ought to seek out the guidance of the president, and it was an, it turned out to be an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. Uh, this was back in 2013, and it involved the issue of uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage. If you recall, back in 2013, the United States government then was uh, in the process of uh, litigating the challenge to Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, uh, and uh, seeking to have it struck down. And that case made its way to the Supreme Court, and we were litigating that case. Uh, and then, in addition, the Supreme Court took up the case of Hollingsworth against Perry from California about Prop 8 and the constitutionality of Prop 8's restriction on uh, same-sex marriage. And we were litigants in the Windsor case about DOMO, and, and the United States was not in the Hollingsworth against Perry case, and we needed to make a judgment about whether to file an amicus brief in Hollingsworth against Perry or not. And the 
this was going to be quite a consequential step. If we filed an amicus brief, it would be an amicus brief saying that we were supporting uh, marriage equality. Uh, and uh, it was a you know it was a tough call uh, whether that was a good idea or not because it was quite important uh, having the United States having made this um, decision that we were no longer going to defend the constitutionality of DOMA that we follow through and prevail on that case and there was a concern that if we filed an amicus brief in Hollingsworth against Perry embracing marriage equality at that point as the position of the U.S. government that it might uh, backfire and make it paradoxically more difficult to win the the DOMA case on the thought that uh, you know that if ruling for uh, the United States and ruling for the challengers and striking down Section 3 of DOMA would necessarily imply a right to marriage equality, maybe there weren't five justices ready to take that step yet. Um, on the other hand, you know, we were taking a strong position that discrimination based on sexual orientation should be subject to heightened scrutiny under the Constitution, and uh, it's a little bit hard to stay silent in the Perry case. And so I thought this is one where the president really ought to make the judgment. So I asked for a meeting, and, and the attorney general and I went over and had a meeting with the president and the White House counsel. And uh, it was an amazing meeting. It lasted longer than an hour. And I first laid out for the president my sense of all the arguments that might lead one to conclude that you shouldn't file an amicus brief, arguments of the kind I just described. Uh, and then said, but when I'm done with that, I'm going to tell you why I nonetheless think we should. And we had this extraordinary back and forth where he, even though um, it turns out that he didn't know we were coming, so he hadn't prepared for the meeting. And it was quite remarkable because he seemed to have the entirety of the 14th Amendment uh, equal protection doctrine at the tip of his fingers. It was it was amazing. He was able to ask all these really detailed probing questions. And he would say, well, you know, Justice Scalia is going to ask you this. What are you going to say? Well, Justice Scalia is going to ask you that. What are you going to say? And, and basically about 15 minutes of moot court with him in there. And then eventually we got to a point where um, the discussion sort of moved away from just pure legal doctrine, and the president was expressing a view, which I know he holds quite strongly, that th this kind of social change is much more durable uh, and um, much more likely to be accepted by the public if it comes through the majoritarian process, and that, you know, that given that the younger generation is so overwhelmingly supportive of marriage equality that, you know, maybe the right answer is not to have the courts intervene and just uh, have this thing unfold uh, through the political process and then in a generation be taken care of. And then we kind of discussed that for a while and sort of got to the point of saying, well, you know, probably that's not what will happen. Probably you'll end up with a situation much like uh, the, the situation of racial segregation where it is broken down in most of the country but persists in part of the country and so we basically have a nation divided and what about the kids uh gay and lesbian kids who grow up in these states that don't recognize marriage equality they're basically being told by their government that they're a second-class citizen and at that point the president made a reference to uh, martin luther king's letter from a birmingham jail uh said you know it's really like that isn't it uh, about waiting and why we can't wait and I had happened to have read the letter from Birmingham jail the night before the meeting, just as part of my preparation for trying to think through what the right answer was in this situation. And 
I happened to have a copy of it with me, and I pulled out my copy and opened it to the page where Dr. King was talking about having to tell his six-year-old child that she couldn't go to the amusement park because of her race and watching the clouds of inferiority form in her mind. And it kind of got to the point of, um, uh, of uh, I think, getting everybody in the room comfortable with the idea that you know there was a basis to act here, um, even given the strong preference for letting the majoritarian process uh, uh, ultimately deal with this issue that there was a there was a basis to act now not to say that this conversation changed the president's mind I think he could well have had as a going in proposition the the idea that uh, this was a brief we needed to file but uh, I will say that the conversation was just amazing on every level you know the subtlety of of his grasp of the doctrine and the thoroughness of the discussion and the thoughtfulness of balancing the question of whether the courts ought to intervene or not and whether it's the government's role to ask the courts to intervene or not, it was remarkable. It was just a remarkable conversation. So many layers involved there. It must have been uh, nice to have uh, on the other side of the conversation a constitutional law professor to walk through them with. Yes, he was a constitutional law professor, but, but so much more. I did want to get into some of the specific major cases that your office dealt with, including those two, and then a couple of years later, the case of Obergefell dealing with marriage equality and, mm-hmm. and others, certainly the Affordable Care Act. When, when you're dealing with cases and you're obviously party to some of them, uh, amicus and others, and you just know that the ruling in that case could be one that's forever in American history books. Um, what is, what's going through your head when you're, when you're trying to prepare those cases uh, when you know so much is at stake? Well, you do, um, you know, it would be, it, it, this is a hard one to answer. You see me fumbling a little bit. You know, on the one hand, you do try to approach it just like any other case, you know, in the sense that I would prepare in exactly the same way um, and I would uh, try to perform in exactly the same way at argument. Um, but I will say that it's not lost on anybody when there's a case of that consequence. Uh, in the run-up to it, everybody understands just how consequential a matter it is. And uh, when you're in the courtroom at argument, you know the the, the atmosphere is just charged with electricity. And and, um, and one thing I will say, I you know I thought this happened in in uh, Perry against Hollingsworth and in, in the United States against Windsor in 2013 and again in Obergefell in 2015 that I thought the justices and the advocates all did a really excellent job, you know, appreciating just how highly charged the situation it was and how fraught it was and how much was on the line, keeping the the dialogue civilized and restrained and respectful and thoughtful and I think that happened in all three of those cases, and I thought it was you know, quite, quite important, and I was very appreciative of it. Um, but there, but it does, uh, you know, even though I said I tried to treat it just like any other case in terms of preparation, and that was true in terms of the forms of preparation, I realized uh, in those cases, and, I, and you know, Bergefell is a good example of that, that um, maybe this was a moment that demanded something more. Um, from me, from the Solicitor General, uh, speaking for the United States. And I contrast that, the argument in Perry against Hollingsworth with the argument in Obergefell. You know, in Perry against Hollingsworth, I made an argument that 
was pretty much a standard legal doctrinal argument. I went in and said, well, you know, under the 14th Amendment, heightened scrutiny applies to laws that discriminates against certain categories of people when certain conditions are met. And I kind of ticked through the conditions to try to show that they were met, and therefore heightened scrutiny applied, and there wasn't a sufficiently strong reason to deny marriage equality. And the argument, frankly, kind of went over like a lead balloon, and I didn't really think I was connecting with anybody. And so two years later, I was going to argue the Obergefell case and was basically arguing you know, more or less the same legal case as two years earlier. But I decided it was I needed to do something different. And really what I did was to have a version of the discussion, have a version of the discussion I had with the president um, with the justices in the argument in Obergefell and that I decided I was just going to focus not on pure doctrine, but on what really mattered you know, why should the Supreme Court, as opposed to the majoritarian process, be making this decision? And why should the court be making it now, as opposed to waiting for the future? And I just decided I was going to organize what I said around those two questions. And I was going to talk about that in common sense terms, but terms that I thought, that I hoped were appropriate to the moment. And so I do think in that sense um, that, you know, I did approach it differently than I might um, some other arguments. Um, and then on healthcare too, you know, on the, on the end of the marathon, three days of argument in the first healthcare case, NFIB versus Sibelius, I did decide I ought to sum up in a way that kind of changed the frame of reference somewhat. And so I did try to speak more broadly about my sense, speaking in defense of the law, that you really had to understand it as a law that was put in place to secure the blessings of liberty for Americans by allowing them to get health care to free them from the shackles of injury and disease and allow them to really live a life in which they can enjoy their liberty. And that's not the kind of thing I would have said at the, at the end of just any case, you know. So, the, so sometimes with the really big cases, I did try to find words that I thought were appropriate to the moment. It's fascinating to hear you describe it that way because certainly in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy's opinion does much the same thing in that it stresses perhaps more than a constitutional formula to sort of the, the overall importance of this fundamental right. Um, and that was met with some consternation by court observers who felt that there wasn't less secure constitutional grounding in the Obergefell decision. Is that sort of right. the way that your argument went uh, along the same lines? Yeah, well, a little bit. You know, I was principally arguing an equal protection case, um, and Justice Kennedy's opinion has some equal protection discussion in it, but it focuses more on an individual fundamental right analysis under the 14th Amendment. And in my sense approaching it on behalf of the government was that the, the equal protection way of thinking about it was, uh, I thought, the more... Uh, the more appropriate way to approach it because what we're talking about after all is the question of, of a denial of equal access to a status that the government confers and that really sounded in equal protection I thought but you know Justice Kennedy had a different view we thought it should be principally grounded in uh, fundamental uh, rights fundamental liberty considerations under the 14th Amendment and um, and there was, you know, significant overlap between the two, obviously. And I will say, you know, one, it's one thing to um, that, that the words you use in oral argument, you're not 
unless the justices are asking you, and sometimes they do, they'll say exactly what legal standard are you asking us for here or exactly how we should write this opinion. You're not, you know, you're not always trying an argument to prescribe the precise doctrinal formulation uh, that the judgment ought to be expressed in. Sometimes you're trying to to give voice to the underlying reasons why they, their doctrinal formulation should direct itself to a certain outcome, you know, and, and I just felt like, you know, Bersha felt it was important to try to answer those questions because, you know, whatever the doctrine might be, at the end of the day, the court had to decide that it was its job and not the majoritarian process to answer this question, and it had to decide that it needed to do the job now, and so I, I thought those were just the right things to talk about and argue. Those are obviously some very salient victories for the administration and your office. Let's talk about one adverse ruling in, in Shelby County versus Holder, which uh, stripped away some portions of the Voter Rights Act that was from October term 2012, a 5-4 decision. Um, at the time, how did you regard that ruling? How problematic did you think losing some of those protections were and then bringing it up to today? Um, do you think that that ruling had any particular impact on last November's election? So I don't have any idea whether it had any impact on last November's election, um, and I don't feel qualified to assess that. But um, it was definitely uh, a monumental loss and, and the big the biggest loss of my term, for sure. And, um, and, and uh, I fully appreciated at the time that this was a big loss. Um, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, and the pre-clearance approach that led to the sweeping away of barriers to equal participation on the part of African Americans and others in the electoral process. You know, that was an iconic part of American history. It's one of the most important statutes that the Congress ever enacted, and it brought about hugely important changes to our society. And um, and it's, I think, hard to deny the proposition that uh, discrimination in voting and in access to voting still exists. Uh, at the same time, I wasn't under any illusions that we were going to have an easy time winning that case back in 2013. Several years earlier in the Northwest Austin case, the Supreme Court had considered the question of the constitutionality of Section 5 and the, the particular formula there. Of course, the challenge in the case, just to make sure everybody understands it, is that that was a case in which the law at issue, the preclearance law, was one that required some states, but not every state, and states that had, prior to the mid-1960s, had a long history of discrimination in voting to submit to the Justice Department for advance review any changes they made to their voting systems. Mm -hmm. And the theory behind it was that the Justice Department could you know, take a good hard look, and if those changes were going to make it harder for anybody to vote, then they would be disapproved. And the challenge was, the, when it came back to the Supreme Court uh, in 2012-2013, the argument was, well, the formula that led to those particular states, principally the states of the South, being chosen for this special form of scrutiny, um, you know, whatever just might have justified that 50 years ago doesn't justify it anymore. There isn't a justification for treating some states uh, worse than others in terms of imposing these regulatory burdens. And so that was what the constitutional fight was about. 
and the court in the Northwest Austin case a few years in advance of Shelby County had uh, issued an, an opinion in which they didn't decide that question, but they raised some very serious doubts about the continuing constitutionality of Section 5. And so we knew that we were going to have a real struggle trying to uh, get a majority of the justices to uh, vote to continue to uphold the law. We thought our best chance to get the majority of justices to vote to uphold the law would be to stress judicial restraint, to stress the argument that this was a judgment that the Congress made based on its consideration of the facts and circumstances on the ground and its assessment of the continuing need for uh, this kind of oversight to ensure that the right to vote isn't degraded and that it was passed by overwhelming majorities in both houses of Congress and that it uh, was a situation where the court ought, to, court ought to be deferring to the legislative judgment about the continuing need for the law. Now, we got four votes for that proposition, but we didn't get the fifth. And uh, and uh, so it, and that was quite a significant loss. And I do think it's a loss that has had practical consequences in that uh, states that formerly would have had to submit for pre-clearance, various kinds of changes to electoral practices, such as reducing the number of uh, days available for early voting or reducing the number of polling places or, you know, a lot of these kind of under-the-radar screen, uh, lesser order uh, changes that may not seem like a huge deal on the surface, but, you know, in, in practice and particularly when you add them all up and cumulatively, really do have a material impact on the right to vote. You know, a lot of those things were no longer subject to the kind of scrutiny that they were before. And um, now they weren't, scrutiny wasn't completely eliminated. Of course, you still had Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act intact, and that does apply all over the country, and there has been some successful litigation using it. Uh, but but it was a big loss, uh, both in terms of the iconic nature of the statute and in, and in terms of the possible practical effects, uh, you know, on the vitally important right to vote. As you say, that's a, a 5-4 ruling. Many of the other most significant cases often are 5-4. Um, in this most recent term, of course, after Justice Scalia's passing, 5-4 uh, votes were you know, not a possibility. Um, you're arguing before an eight-member court. What, uh, what, what is it like arguing before uh, just eight members and knowing that the possibility of a tie exists? And what's the experience like when you, you put all, all that effort in and there's a neutral tie sort of non-result? So... I actually think, you know, Justice Scalia passed away in February of 2016, and I was still Solicitor General at the time and argued a few cases before the eight justice court. And the main, you know, it had a profound effect, but the main effect it had wasn't so much just about it being eight instead of nine. It was that Justice Scalia was no longer there. And he, you know, he was a, just an absolute type and he, he was a brilliant, brilliant jurist, and he had a powerful effect when he was on the bench. Um, uh, he, you might agree with him, you might disagree with him in terms of his his uh, approach to statutory construction, his approach to reading the Constitution, his his legal philosophy generally. But he, he was brilliant, and he was a brilliant and forceful advocate for a, you know, quite a powerful view of the law. And it just wasn't that wasn't there anymore. And th and that combined, I think, with the genuine sadness of everybody participating in the process, the justices and the advocates, 
uh, it just changed the tenor of the discussion through most of that spring. Uh, it was more somber. It was a little less highly charged. Um, and But I think that was, as I said, as much about um, it being uh, Justice Scalia not being there as, a, as opposed to it just being a, a, an eight-person rather than a nine-person court. And then, you know, whether it's an eight-person or a nine-person court, that you know, if you have lost below, you know, four votes doesn't do you much good. Four-four tie means the, the decision below is affirmed, so you lose. So you really still, you know, you're fighting for five votes. Um, and I, I think in the cases that I did that spring, um, I was definitely fighting for five votes, you know, in the uh, Fisher case, in Obergefell, not Obergefell, forgive me, in uh, Whole Woman's Health, uh, in the Texas immigration case where we did end up with a 4-4 tie. You know, those were the cases I was arguing that spring, and, you know, I was trying for a fifth vote. I needed a fifth vote to try to prevail in those cases. It's only when you're the respondent and you've won below where a 4-4 uh, will at least uh, give you a victory in the sense that tie goes to the winner, uh, and that tie goes to the winner below in that circumstance. That was not a situation that I was in, in any of the arguments I was doing. Uh, the United States government was, in a few cases, I think, in that position, but I was not in that position. Um, and then, you know, during that term, my last term, they did end up um, having a, a several cases where it was, you know, 5-3 without Justice Scalia, and then several others that tied up 4-4 immigration, tied up 4-4, and the uh, question about... Um, compulsory payments in lieu of union dues for public sector employees, the Friedrich case, that ended up 4-4. Uh, and then, but this term, the current term of the court, has been different in the sense that they haven't taken so many of these really you know, high-profile, defining kinds of cases that seem to be a constant feature of my five-year tenure on the court. <laughs> this year, they have had many fewer of them, if any. And the cases that, and they've clearly been striving hard to find common ground that allows them to rule narrowly, but unanimously or near unanimously. And, you know, they've done that on several cases already this term. So it's pretty obvious, I think, that the absence of Justice Scalia and the absence of a decisive ninth vote has affected the practice of the justices and the approach over the course of this year. But I think that's quite a prudent thing on their part to be trying to be careful in that way. I, I don't think it helps the country a great deal or the development of the law to issue a bunch of 4-4 tie decisions where there's no opinion and everything is left unresolved. So so I, I do think that they deserve a lot of credit for the way they're approaching it this year. Did it uh, surprise you to any extent, the fact that Justice Scalia's seat has lingered vacant as long as it has, or the nature that it has stayed open? Yeah, I was really unhappy about that. Um, I, I wrote a couple of pieces about it, and I um, I think it's really, really a shame uh, on multiple levels. One is you know, Merrick Garland would have been an absolute exemplary justice, um, and I think he would have brought uh, great credit to the court by his service, and I think he would have been welcomed by his colleagues up there. And, uh, and, and you know, and he's a genuine, careful, moderate, thoughtful person, and I think he would have uh, brought a sense of balance to the court and that he would have been in the middle, you know, and in order to 
prevail on a case, you would have had to convince this you know, very sensible, moderate person to come your way. And I think that would have been a good thing. And I think the flip side of it is that you know, we've been in a downward spiral in terms of the confirmation process, the judicial confirmation process for a long time now. Um, and that's been a shame, and both parties have contributed to that, I think. But I have to say this seems like a real uh, material uh, degradation of the process well beyond anything we've had so far to go basically a year, uh, not even have a hearing. Basically, it seems to me what the Republican majority in the Senate was saying was, you know, if Donald Trump wins, we'll get a justice who's going to vote more to our liking. And so we're just not going to consider this nominee, even though he's fully qualified. And some Republican senators had previously described him as a consensus nominee. We're not even going to give him a vote because we'll get somebody who uh, whose bottom line results we're going to like better. Well, I just said, I think that just sends a glaring message that all that matters is the bottom line results. You know, it's not about character. It's not about judicial temperament. It's not about intellect. It's just about the bottom line. And that's terrible. You know, that, I mean, it's, it's just stripped away any sense that you ought to be making these judgments on the basis of character and intellect and temperament uh, as opposed to just how people vote. And um, and so I, I don't know how we climb back from that. I just don't know. I hope we can. I hope we can. But I don't know how we climb back from that. And there's just... Um, has created an enormous, enormous reservoir of bitterness, and um, and whomever the uh, new president appoints to fill this seat, you know, I'm quite sure that the person the president appoints will be, you know, quite a smart, able, qualified jurist. Um, but there's going to be a cloud there. There just is, and not the fault of the person being nominated by any means, but. Um, uh, the, the, the Democrats, I think, to a person, are deeply, deeply angered by what happened, and um, and uh, it's going to, you know, create certain incentives on their part to approach this process in a in a more aggressive way. And I just think the whole thing is terribly, terribly unfortunate. It was a horrible mistake. I think it does seem like there's always a unsettled tension regarding how much political affiliation or ideology matters when it comes to the court's functioning. And um, most, at least outwardly, will claim you know the, the court can act independently, it can be neutral. And it seems like this process just reaffirms and underlines, as you say, the fact that uh, the most important thing is political belief. Well, certainly, you know, I, I think the reality is that the justices themselves as individuals can continue to behave in a non-political manner. But the public's perception of it is just being battered by this kind of behavior, I think. You know, and what, what's the public to think other than that this is political, you know? And then that's just that, that, that you couldn't have sent a clearer message, I think, by their conduct over the past year that, that the, you know, to reinforce that unfortunately cynical public view that this is just politics. It isn't just politics. I don't think it is. But, but boy, is that, you know, was it hard to maintain? It's hard to maintain that faith in the face of activity like this. Speaking of that inter-party tension and truculence and political polarization and bitterness between folks on either side of the divide, I'd be curious to ask you as someone that spent 
quite a bit of time within the the American governing system. If how you regard this past election cycle, uh, you know, if it stands out as particularly hostile and and meaningfully different, or if it's just like ones that have preceded it, where this is the nature of political elections that they're that they're nasty. Well, my, you know, I'm no great expert on the political process, but I, I can't help but feel like it was an order of magnitude worse than anything I've experienced in my lifetime, and um, and I, I think it frightened a lot of people, and I actually think it frightened a lot of people on both sides of the political divide, and, and if there's a a ray of hope to be spotted here. I think it's in that um, I think people on both sides of the political divide have gotten a glimpse now of just how things can look, how bad it can be when things go too far, when the norms that we share and that bind us together and that ought to uh, rise above uh, the normal partisan fighting that we do really start to shred uh, and and fray and fall apart, that it's scary. And and so I do think you are having a significant number of thoughtful people on both sides of the political divide recognize that. And so maybe, 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 you know, maybe the ray of hope here is that it will lead people to pull back, realize that, that these norms that bind us together do matter more than our partisan differences and that we ought to attend to them a little more sure. thoughtfully than we have been. It's no secret that high atop the, the agenda of the first 100 days of the new administration is, is dismantling the Affordable Care Act as the person that was you know, responsible for defending it twice before the country's court of last resort. Um, what particular thoughts do you have about that? Well, you know, the political process will do what it does. The politicians will do what they do on this. Um, but in terms of the passage of the act and then the Supreme Court's validation of it first in National Federation of Independent Business versus Abilius, and then in King against Burwell a few, a few years later, I think there are, um, I think things, quite important things are going to endure uh, from that. I do think that the NFIB versus Abilius case, you know, that was a very important exercise in judicial restraint uh, on the part of the a majority of the justices recognizing that uh, the law was the legitimate product of the political process and it wasn't the court's proper role to throw it overboard and and uh, and disregard the majoritarian process and you know that's a very important principle and that principle is there and that case stands for it the other thing i think that really matters a lot is that you know the law was enacted, and it was a law that attempted for the first time in the country's history to essentially make affordable health care a right for almost everybody. It didn't quite reach everybody, but almost everybody. And that the Supreme Court's validation of the law in NFIB in 2012 allowed the law to go into existence and to be implemented and to begin to deliver on its promise. And the law did deliver on its promise, of course, imperfectly, and it certainly has flaws, but you now have more than 20 million people who have health insurance who didn't have it before, and we've proven that that can be done. Uh, the passage of the law 
the validation of it by the Supreme Court, the implementation of it, and the benefits that have flowed from that implementation are, you know, we've proven that it can be done. And I think that that permanently alters the nature of the debate in the country in that um, six or seven years ago, the debate really was, I mean, seven or eight years ago before the Affordable Care Act was passed, the debate was much more of an ideological debate about whether it was the business of government at all to be guaranteeing affordable health care or, or not, you know, or was it that's something that ought to be just left to the private market, the private ordering, and that uh, people were unable to get health care. Well, charity could step in or whatever, uh, but it, it wasn't a responsibility the government ought to take on. Now the terms of the debate are totally different. If you just watch the debate that's unfolding now, you know, what, whatever happens in practice, whatever, if, if the Affordable Care Act is repealed and replaced with something else, whatever form that replacement ultimately takes, um, the arguments are all about finding uh, cheaper, more flexible, more efficient ways to ensure access to health care for everybody, as opposed to debating the question of whether it should be available at all. It's, you know, there's virtually nobody willing to defend the proposition that this isn't government's business, uh, that uh, people ought to have to fend for themselves in this uh, area of life. and. Uh, and so, and I just think that's a permanent, enduring um, accomplishment of the law that it has made clear that we can recognize a right to health care for everybody, and we have means by which we can bring it about. And so, that's the standard against which whatever happens in the future is going to be measured. And I think that's a huge thing. You have some former DOJ colleagues, career attorneys who now, under a new administration, find themselves. In a, in a position that's you know, different from the uh, the previous one, um, I suppose that's the nature of a, of a government attorney. Administrations change, and you stay in the same position. But um, have you heard from any of these folks? And what what would you say to them if they feel like they're you know somewhat concerned as to the role they now play? So I haven't heard from them, but if I if I were to hear from them, I would urge them to stay and do their jobs uh, and. I think the reason is that you know, there are the one, one of the things that impressed me the most about my seven and a half years in the executive branch of the government is the extraordinary number of super talented, super dedicated lawyers who are serving the people of the United States uh, uh, through their government service. And they do a phenomenal job. And a lot of the work they do, most of the work they do, isn't going to be affected one way or the other by who's president. Some will, certainly, in terms of the policies they'll be defending. But these are people of great intelligence and great integrity, and they protect the interests of all of us citizens um, with their hard work and their dedication and their brilliance. And it's to all of our benefit that they continue to work uh, and, and carry out those responsibilities. You know, and if somebody ever asks them to do something that they don't feel ethically comfortable doing, they can always resign at that point. But I don't think that's likely to happen. And um, and I think in the main, what I'd like to, you know, I want to see the business of government carried on by these fantastic public servants. And so I hope they continue to do it. As for yourself, you're with Munger, Tolls & Olson in their Washington, D.C. office. How do you envision your role there and what uh, what do you think you'll be working on? Well, one of the things that was 
so exciting for me about this opportunity at Munger Tolson Olson was, you know, as you know, this is a firm that's built its reputation on the quality of its lawyers. Uh, it doesn't go around hunting for lateral partners and practice groups and all that. It finds really, really great young lawyers and it grooms them and trains them and nurtures them and, and brings them up and lets them flourish and develop into superstars. And they've essentially asked me to do that here uh, from a Washington, D.C. platform to find some really super, super talented young lawyers and bring them in and you know grow a group here that will be a Munger, Tolson, Olson group just uh, out on the East Coast. And so I'm getting a huge amount of personal satisfaction. We've already uh, brought in, we're now up to seven lawyers here, and every one of them is an A-plus superstar lawyer. And uh, we'll be continuing to look for really fantastic, talented young people to come in and um, and contribute and help us build this office, um, uh, which will be you know everything that Munger Tolls is, just from a platform on the East Coast. And I'm really excited about that. And then in terms of the work we'll be doing, uh, we'll be doing the work that Munger Tolls does, uh, helping clients solve their most challenging problems with really, really uh, great teams of great lawyers. You know, I personally think I'll be, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if I was doing some appellate and Supreme Court work, <laughs> given my background, um, a fair amount of intellectual property work, which has always been something I re- really care about and I'm interested in, regulatory work, um, and, you know, whatever comes along. You know, my sense at this point in my career is that I am very, very blessed and lucky to have had the job of Solicitor General and to have participated in so many extraordinary cases as Solicitor General. And I hope to have more chances to be in front of the Supreme Court, but I really have been to the mountaintop, you know, and I, my focus now is on finding a way to have a practice that helps clients solve their most difficult, challenging problems whether they're in the Supreme Court or not in the Supreme Court. And, you know, most of the time, clients' biggest challenges aren't in the Supreme Court, and so I want to be in a position to help clients in in whatever way I can, wherever their challenges arise. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and let you get back to that very important work. But I appreciate you taking the time, Mr. Donald. Congratulations on the culmination of your work as Solicitor General, and uh, good luck in, in the work ahead. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. that, our program for January 27th, 2017 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender very sincere gratitude to my guest, Mr. Donald Verrilli. It's a true privilege to speak with him, and I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. Uh, that's also quite appreciated. Members of our production staff here also merit some thanks, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.